Well, we had 192 people last Sunday. <laughs> last Sunday. And so obviously the attendance is a little bit lighter uh, this Sunday. I don't know if it's sickness, but I just want to let you know, those of you that are here, I really am thankful for each and every one of you. You encourage me, you encourage others, and I do desperately miss you when you do not show up. So I want you to know that. It makes a difference to see your face, to see your smile, to see you yawning, whatever it is. <laughs> uh, you encourage not only me, but you encourage one another. And this is why God has tell, told us through his word to, to come together. Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. But encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. We are a body, we are a family, and this is our family time. So, let me just say this. If you're, if you're sick on any given Sunday, and it's not contagious, why don't you just come anyway? Because you can be sick at home, or you could be sick here with the body, right? As long as it's not too contagious. And if it is contagious, we have a section for you right out there on the patio. <laughs> we'll open the door so that you can listen, but I can still see your beautiful face. Uh, if you're running late, don't let that discourage you. Now, I would encourage you to come on time so we have a little bit of time with you in the morning. But listen, there's nothing. If you come in late, come in late. You got up, the morning didn't go so well. I'll tell you just a, an embarrassing story. I was on my way to church this morning. And I realized that I did not put on my cologne because I can smell that. And then I realized, Jeremy, you didn't put on deodorant either because the two go hand in hand. Don't worry, I turned around and went back home. We have mornings like that, right? There's no way I would come here without deodorant. I'm just letting you know right now. But we have mornings like that. Come. Come anyway. Come and be a part of what God is doing here. And one more thing. Invite somebody. Invite somebody. Not someone who already has a church. I don't want to take people from another church. Invite someone who doesn't go to church. Invite someone who doesn't know the Lord. Invite someone who, who's just messed up and looking for some answers. Invite someone to come with you and see what's going on here. So this morning we are in Mark. We are in Mark. And if you don't know, we've been in Mark for a while. Mark chapter 7 we'll be looking at. We're looking at verses 31 through 37. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we provide Bibles. They're blue underneath the seats. And if you turn to page 843, that'll bring you to Mark chapter 7. Now, we have been going through the Gospel of Mark, as I said, verse by verse over the last eight months. And during that time, we have encountered on more than one occasion... Jesus' miraculous healing powers, stories surrounding these healings that he has done. Let me just remind you of a few of these. He healed mothers or Peter's mother-in-law who was lying sick with fever. Mark chapter 1, verse 30. He completely restored a man's leprosy or restored a man from his leprosy, his legs, in Mark chapter 1, verse 41. And... I'm sorry, he removed a man's leprosy. That's what he did. He removed a man's leprosy. He didn't restore it. He removed this disease in Mark chapter 1, verse 41, and he restored the legs of a paralytic in Mark chapter 2, verse 11, and a withered man's hand in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. He healed a woman with chronic bleeding in Mark chapter 5, verse 29, and he gave life to a dead girl 
Mark chapter 5, verse 41. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. Mark chapter 1, verse 34. Chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 5 and 56. Just a few of the miraculous healings that we have witnessed and read about over the last eight months. Well, today we're going to look at another healing. Another healing performed by Jesus, but... I want to make sure that we are careful not to read over it as just another miracle. Just another miracle. Here Jesus goes again. Or start thinking that the healing stories of Jesus are unnecessarily repetitive or a waste of our attention and consideration. At the end of John's Gospel, just listen, in John chapter 21, verse 25, John wrote the following words. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Many other things besides what I've recorded in this gospel, in this letter, in this book that we call John, the gospel of John. There are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Okay, so this means that the gospel writers were selective in what they recorded. They were selective. They did not record everything. They didn't have enough paper. But no, that's not it. They were selective, giving their readers what they believed was the most important information that they needed to know about Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Same book, same Gospel. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Okay, so as we said before, there's many things that he did. Not all of them are included, including many miracles, many signs that he did. But I didn't write them all down, John says, verse 31. But the ones I did write down, but these are written. Why? So that you may believe something that Jesus is the Christ first, Second, the Son of God. And as a result, by believing, you may have life in His name. In His name. In other words, unlike many of today's writers, they were not including unnecessary information to fill the books of a page or the pages of a book just to sell it for a profit. Have you ever read a book and you're going through it and you just think, this is useless information. This, he has taken a, a sentence and expanded it into two paragraphs. He could have said it in five words. Why do you think they do that? They have to sell books. They have to fill a page. No one wants to, buy, no one wants to spend ten bucks on three pages. But maybe I'll spend ten bucks on fifty pages or a hundred pages. The Bible is not like that. It is not like that. It is not a book just filled with useless words or repetitive words. Every one of them was selected for a reason. Beyond that, the Apostle Paul informs us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This is probably a familiar passage. This is what the writer Paul says. All Scripture, all of what has been written, is breathed out by God. The Bible. All of it has been... It is literally His breath exhaled by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped 
for every good work. You know what this means? This means that every word of Scripture can be profitable or helpful to us. Let me say it a different way. Every word of Scripture was intended to be profitable or helpful for us. This is one of the reasons that here we teach through the Word of God section by section, verse by verse, because we actually believe what the Bible says, that God has said in His Word that every bit of it, from Genesis to Revelation, is equally from Him. And therefore, no part of it, no part of it, should we ignore. And every part of it deserves our full attention. So, I say that as a preface as we now look again. For some of you, this might just be another healing story. Don't see it that way. Don't see it that way. Open your minds and your hearts to the fact that it was not included just to fill a piece of paper. And that God superintended the writing of it because He wants you to hear it. He wanted you to have it. The section of God's Word, by the way, we're looking at this morning is also unique in the fact that it is this particular healing is only recorded in the Gospel of Mark. Now, let me just give you... I've said this before, but let me say it again. You have four Gospels that record the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, generally, about Jesus Christ. Four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And some of them record the same events. Many of them record a lot of the same events, but give different details. With this particular event, this healing story, it is only found in Mark. So it makes it unique. It is not found in Matthew or Luke or John. So my hope for us today, before we are finished, is that we will start to understand why Mark took the time to include it and then we will profit from it. That's my hope. I hope God will do that for us this morning. Now, look at the text with me. Mark chapter 7. Let's read it. We'll be reading verses 31 through 37. Verses 31 through 37. Page 843 in those blue Bibles. Jesus, then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. If you're new with us this morning, inside of your bulletin on the left-hand side is an outline. It'll cover what we're going to look at this morning. There are four points. And at the top of the outline, by the way, we titled this or I titled this message, More Than a Miracle. 
There's a statement at the top. It just kind of tells you where we're going, so you know what we're going to do. It says, we will look at four details. Those are the four outline points that point to the messianic implications behind this, quote, bizarre miracle, so that we will remember to think about and worship Jesus as the Christ. Now, before we dive into the text, it's important that we look at the context, Let me remind you of something we have talked about before. Maybe you weren't here. Maybe you have forgotten, and that's okay. Mark wrote this book for a purpose, not simply to record facts or, as I said before, fill a sheet with words, but to demonstrate to his readers the glorious truth that Jesus was and is the Christ, the Son of God. And based on that news, those facts, he should be followed by all with full confidence, total submission, and never-ending loyalty. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And because of that, we should follow him with full confidence, total submission, and never-ending loyalty. This first century Christian would have used this book as an evangelistic tool to share the saving truth of Jesus with their family and their friends and their community. That's what they would have used it for. If you analyze the way the book is structured, which probably most of you have never done, I'm guessing, scholars do this. And it's helpful. So I'm going to help give you that information. What you see is that Mark is carefully building the plot, developing the characters and recording the events that he believes will guide his readers to the same convictions that he has about Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. The first half of Mark, there are 16 chapters in Mark, the first half, the first eight chapters, is a slow build until we get to the great confession, which we'll get there in a few weeks, that Peter made in chapter 8, verse 29. Chapter 1, leading all the way up to 829, Mark is taking us on a journey. And he's taking us to the moment when Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. The second half of Mark, the last eight chapters, will lead us to another great confession about Jesus. But this time it will be made by a Roman soldier, a centurion, in chapter 15, verse 39. And he will confess that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what Mark's doing. You may have missed it. You may not care. But you should care. Because it was important to Mark. And it was important to God when he superintended the recording of Mark. He wanted you to know Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is the Son of God. These two realities are the primary truths that Mark is trying to communicate. And he wanted his readers to seriously consider and fully embrace. Now, beloved, we get Christianized. We've heard Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God so many times. It's like, means, what's that? So, yeah, yeah, I know that, Pastor. I've heard that a million times. Okay. Bear with me. Bear with me. You may have heard it. You may have said it. But have you really embraced that? We're going to talk about that in a moment here. 
The point is that the miracle stories, beloved, that Mark keeps including are not just thrown in to entertain us. Wow, look at that. That's a, that's a cool miracle. But they're part of a greater unit of truth that when understood correctly are designed to inform and educate us about the glorious and humble reality of the one that you and I so easily call Jesus. Now, let's consider the text before us as we get in, dive into this section here. When we were last in Mark, which was a couple weeks ago, Jesus was in the region of Tyre. Can you put up that map? And I only do this because, wow, that's going to be hard for you to see, but that's okay. I only do this because some people like geography. And it'll kind of help you know that these were real events. This is not a fairy tale. Mark is recording actual movement by Jesus that happened in the land during the first century. This is not a joke. This is not make-believe. This is real stuff that was going on. So we know that, I'm going to use my laser pointer over here. This is Tyre right here. Right here, Tyre. And this is Sidon. They're coastal cities. This area right here now is modern-day Lebanon. Modern-day Lebanon. Now Jesus was in this area right here last we, we read. Now this section records his travels from that area to the region of Decapolis. Decapolis. Decapolis, see if I can get it, is right here. This whole region down here is Decapolis. Now you see this little section right here? This is the Sea of Galilee. And this is where Jesus has been spending his time. Sometimes he's on the east side of Galilee. Sometimes he's on the west. But he left, went to Tyre. Now he has traveled through Sidon, the text tells us, and down here to this area of Decapolis. So I just wanted you to see that. We don't know why he did that. The, the commentators try to figure out why he would travel north and then come back down. We don't know what he did up here. We don't know from any of the four Gospels. All Mark is telling us is this is what Jesus did. He was here. He went up here to Sidon. Then he came down to Decapolis. So that's where he is. That's where we find him now. Now this area had some awareness of Jesus already. We know the Sea of Galilee. You can take it down in a second. We know the Sea of Galilee knew who Jesus was. That's where most of his ministry, most of his miracles were taking place. But now he's south of the Sea of Galilee. He's in Decapolis. But, maybe you don't remember, in Mark chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, we're told about the fact, or in that section, that Jesus healed a man, a demoniac, someone possessed by demons, in that or near that area. And then he told him this, in chapter 5, verse 19, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So, when Jesus arrived in this area, as usual, people gathered to see him. Those of you who have been with us as we're moving through the Gospel of Mark, every time he shows up in an area, he doesn't stay alone for long, does he? Immediately the people come. As soon as they hear he's there, they come because they've heard about what he can do. In this particular area... There's nothing different except they don't know about all the miracles necessarily. Maybe they know through rumors. But they do know about this guy who was possessed 
who now is free, and he went home and told all of his friends. So his fame now had spread throughout the land just like it did in the Sea of Galilee. You know why I tell you all this? Just so that you see it's a real story. It's a real story that was written to be believed. Not just read and go, okay, that's a nice story, but it has implications on your life. Now, on this particular occasion, a deaf man with a speech impediment, that just means he he wasn't able to speak properly, clearly. There was something wrong. We don't know exactly what it was. It could be that his deafness came along later on in life and that impacted his speech. We don't know. All we know is the text tells us he was deaf and he had a speech impediment. And he was brought to Jesus by his friends with the request that Jesus lay his hands on this handicapped man. That's verse 32. So that's the scenario. That's the story. That's the setup. Jesus is in the area. People find out. Some friends bring their deaf and problem impediment speaking speaking man that has a speech impediment. They bring him to Jesus and they request, Jesus, will you lay your hands on him? Now, there are two things we need to consider before we look at the first point. And it is this. It is not safe to assume that they actually expected that Jesus would heal him right there on the spot. It is not safe to assume that. In fact, look back at the text. Look at verse 37. Their reaction to the healing, quote, and they were astonished beyond measure, strongly suggests that what Jesus actually did was not something that they considered to be possible. Not something they considered to be possible. The Jewish practice of laying on of hands was done by Jews to pronounce a blessing or pray to God for a healing. That was it. Announce a blessing or pray to God for a healing. So it is most likely that they brought the man to Jesus for his blessing, hoping that it would be special and somehow help their friend. But they were in for a very big surprise. So that's the first thing you need to consider. Second, and this is huge, the word that Mark used for speech impediment, you do know, let me just, if you don't, they didn't write in English. When they wrote the Scriptures, they did not write in English. They wrote in Hebrew, they wrote in Greek, they wrote in Aramaic. In this case, it's in Greek. The word that Mark used in Greek for speech impediment in verse 32 is an extremely rare Greek word. It is the only time that it is actually used in the New Testament. The only time. But it also shows up in a very important passage in what we refer to as the Septuagint. The Septuagint. What is that? The Septuagint is an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. That's what the Septuagint is. So if you hear that and you're reading somewhere, the Septuagint is simply, think of it like this, it is the Old Testament translated into Greek. Why? Because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and this translation was needed at the time because the world was predominantly speaking Greek. So they took the Old Testament over many years and they translated it into Greek, what we now refer to as the Septuagint. It was completed about a century before Jesus came onto the scene. 
it was the Bible of the early church. It was the Bible they used because Greek was the predominant language. Now, the Old Testament passage in the Septuagint that this Greek word is used in is in Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35. Specifically, verse 6. I want you to see it. Turn there. Page 595, if you're using one of those church Bibles, or just open your Bible about halfway to the middle, and you'll come close to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35. And we're going to look at verse 5. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, see the word mute? Same Greek word used in the Septuagint. Same one. We'll sing for joy. Now stop right there. We'll discuss this more in a moment, but for right now I just wanted to point out those two things. So they were not expecting, most likely they were not expecting Jesus to actually do what he did, heal this man on the spot. And two, Mark uses a very rare Greek word that's only used once in the New Testament and then again in Isaiah 35. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. So now we're ready. Let's look at the first point in the outline. The first point in the outline. And that is the language. I said we were going to look at four details that point to the messianic implications behind this bizarre miracle. The first detail is the language. Mark chapter 7, verse 33. Look back at it again. And I'll explain this. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. What in the world is going on? I mean, at first glance, at first read, this seems like some very bizarre behavior on Jesus' part. <laughs> Anybody want to come up here and, and let me try this on them to show them what that might look like? <laughs> Mark records that Jesus put his fingers in the guy's ear and then spits and touches this guy's tongue. Now, some commentators believe that Jesus spit on his finger. <clears throat> okay? And then he took his saliva and put it into the, on the guy's tongue. Now, this is, this is actually not crazy to think that. And if you have a, a New American Standard Bible, if you have a New American Standard Bible they actually translate this section with that meaning. I'll just read it to you in case you don't have one. It says, in that translation, it says, Jesus took him aside from the crowd. Oh good, we do have it. By himself, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, he touched his tongue. I want to show you something. With the saliva. That's how the New American Standard Bible translates it. He touched his tongue, the man's, with the saliva. The one he just spit out of. Now you'll notice with the saliva is in italics. The reason it's in italics when you see that in this particular case is that is not actually in the original Greek language. The interpreters who put together the New American Standard Bible believe that is what is being communicated there. But they want you to know it's not in the original. The words with the saliva. The ESV is closer to what the original said. 
Now, so like I said, the text doesn't actually say that Jesus spit on his finger and then, and then took his saliva and put it onto the man's tongue. So it's hard to know for sure. They may be right. That may have happened. In, in fact, in the next chapter, in Mark, where another miracle occurs, it is very clear that Jesus actually spits on a blind man's eyes. Chapter 8, verse 22. Spits. And there's no doubt there. So it is not out of the realm of possibility that Jesus would intentionally put his saliva on another person. As bizarre as that might sound. But don't read into this more than is there. Jesus does not have magical spit. He doesn't say that. There's not some... He's not like a dog. You ever heard that? Let a dog lick your wound. No one's ever heard that? You've heard that? Yeah, let a dog lick your wound and there's some medicinal something in the... Do- I don't even know if it's true, but I've always let, my, let a dog lick my wound. Here, because they seem, they seem to be okay with it. and Anything to help? <laughs> uh, I used to do that, sweetie. I, don't, I, don't do, I haven't done it in a long time. When I was a kid. <laughs> Listen. He doesn't have magical spit. That's not what the text says. And he, he's not doing this to entertain the crowds. Wow, I've never seen this before. This is fascinating. The text tells us that he, he took the, side, the man aside privately. He took him away from the crowds. He took him aside privately. Jesus wanted his undivided attention. Why? He was about to communicate with him. He was about to communicate something to him. How do you communicate with someone who is deaf? I heard someone say sign language. Yeah. You use some type of form of sign language. That's what Jesus was doing. Nothing crazy. Nothing out of the ordinary. Jesus' actions here make complete sense when we see that they were specifically designed to convey to this man through these symbolic acts that Jesus was not just going to pray for this man or give him a blessing, but he was actually going to do something about his loss of hearing and his inability to speak clearly. He was going to do something for this man. To this man, Jesus was saying, without words, through these symbolic acts, through this sign language, He was saying, I have the unique power to restore hearing to the deaf and give clear speech to the tongue. I have it. It's me. And that is what I'm going to do for you right now. Now, let me read to you again from Isaiah. Just listen. just want you to keep thinking about this as we make the connection here at the end. Isaiah 35, verse 5 through 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This was more than just a miracle. It had significance beyond the fact that this man would hear and speak again. It's way bigger than that. 
And if you just read through it and go, whoa, what a bizarre thing Jesus did. Just healing another deaf man, making him speak clearly. You've missed it. You've missed it. The look, number two. Mark chapter 7, verse 34. Look back at the text. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. Looking up to heaven, he sighed. So he does this, and whatever he does with the saliva, we're not sure. And then the text says, he looked up to heaven, sighed. Where did Jesus, where did Jesus get his power to do great and glorious things? Where did it come from? Now listen, some have already suggested that he gets his power from Satan. We've already read through Mark. That is the slanderous charge that was made against Jesus by the religious leaders earlier in his ministry, Mark chapter 3, verse 22. They said he does what he does by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Satan. In Mark chapter 6, verse 41... This idea of looking up to heaven, we see it again. We're told that Jesus looked up to heaven, same words, and said a blessing just before he multiplied five loaves of bread and two fish into enough food to feed thousands of people. He looked up to heaven and then he committed this incredible, unproducible, in our day and age, miracle. Five loaves of bread, two fish, feeding thousands. The phrase looking up to heaven was understood as fixing your eyes on the abode of God. Fixing your eyes on the abode of God. Looking up to God in His dwelling place. This gesture, this look of Jesus was not a random glance into the blue skies. He wasn't trying to figure out the time of day. It's about 2 o'clock. He wasn't trying to sneeze. You ever done that? It works, by the way. If you're ever having trouble sneezing and you go out and look at the sun, it brings it on immediately. Some magical thing, I don't know. He wasn't doing that. I believe instead that he was making it clear that God was the source of the power Jesus was about to exercise to make this man whole again. God was the power. He was the source. It was God at work accomplishing His will through Jesus. The look. The point is that Jesus is purposefully, purposefully linking His miraculous ministry to God. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly promised, beloved, and this is why I said people have... They're ignorant about the Old Testament. People even take pride in this. Well, I just read the New Testament. Really? Because God gave you 66 books. He gave you 66, not 27. In the Old Testament, God had repeatedly promised that He would send His Messiah, His Messiah, His Anointed One to earth, and He would give Him power to do some incredible things. So there are really two options here, only two. Jesus knows about the prophecies and He's trying to fool the people into thinking that He is the Messiah. Look guys, look. 
I mean, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. Or, he really is the Messiah. Those are the options. And both have significant implications on us. So the language, the look, third, the command. And we're going we're gonna to tie this all together, hopefully, at the end. Mark chapter 7, look back at the text, verse 34 and 35. And, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha. Ephatha. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus used what scholars believe it was an Aramaic word, Ephatha, Ephatha, which Mark necessarily translated for his Roman readers who would not have understood an Aramaic word. And he translated it for them saying, it means be opened. So he used a specific word that's unique to the Aramaic language and he recorded it here. He wanted us to know exactly what he said and then he translates it for his readers, be open. Notice that this man's restoration did not come about from a polite request by Jesus. just want you to, some of the things that we just kind of read over. He did not say, will you please be opened? Please. Pretty please. Also, it's not recorded that he prayed to God asking him to heal this man. There's nothing in the text about that. He didn't pray, God, would you heal this man? He simply says, Ephatha, be Opened. Jesus simply and authoritatively commanded the defective organs of this man to be opened. Literally, the word means be completely opened. Be completely opened. And at once, the man's ears were unstopped and his tongue was released. By the way, the ears and the tongue did not argue. They did not put up a fight. They simply obeyed the orders of this man called Jesus. The NASB or the NASB translates Mark chapter 7 verse 35 this way, and his ears were open and the impediment of his tongue was removed. And he began speaking plainly. Impediment just means obstacle. The obstacle of his tongue was removed. One commentator talking about this passage says in regard to the tongue, the original Greek is more vivid and concrete, saying this, the chain of his tongue was broken. In the New Testament, the word for chain frequently means a chain or restraint that binds a prisoner. With one command, not medicine, not months of prayer, not magic. One command. Jesus had set this man's tongue free from its imprisonment. Who has that type of authority? That even ears and tongues obey Him. One commentator says about this section, the power of healing lay not in the actions of Jesus, not in the sticking of the fingers in the ear, not in the spitting. Remember, that was sign language. He was communicating something to him. He was not conveying some magical power in this. But the power of his healing lies in the explicit, divinely empowered command of Christ. It was in his command. Be opened. Beloved, God spoke. 
God spoke, maybe you remember, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and let there be light, and the universe, boom, leapt into existence. Like that. Jesus spoke with the same type of sovereign power over His creation. Be opened. So Jason, you'll appreciate this. This, I did this for you, bro. Before we move on to the last point, I want you to consider something just for a moment. If Jesus can command human organs to function and they obey, would He not have the same authority or power to command them to stop functioning? Jason's like, I don't know where you're going with this. Well, here it is. When we think about the One, he talked about it this morning, we're missing it. When we think about the One that we come together to worship, it would be good to consider the reverence and honor that this One who wields such power and authority deserves. It would be good for us to to meditate upon that. And we should think about that the next time that we have an opportunity to use our tongue. For most of us, I, I don't think you have a speech impediment. For most of us, you might have problems speaking, but you don't have necessarily this particular problem. So the next time that we have an opportunity to sing to our God, to praise Him in song, why would you choose to remain silent? You know, I, I sing not because I am a good singer. I've been told that a few times. Or that I want to hear myself sing. I actually do not. But because He is uniquely worthy of my utmost and loudest praise. And you know what? This tone that He's given me, it's unchanged so far. So I consider the one to whom I sing and I, I praise Him, which is the only right thing to do. The only proper response. If I know to whom it is, I'm singing. That's what Jason was saying, by the way. That's what he was saying. And that brings us to the last point praise does. This confession. This confession. Mark chapter 7, verse 37. Look back at the text. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The intensity of the crowd's astonishment. The words beyond measure. That word there, those words, it literally means super abundantly. They were astonished. Whoa! Super abundantly. By the way, that word, those section of words, they're not used to describe any other response to any of other Jesus' miracles. Just this one. This really blew them away, put them back, set them back. And in response to seeing what this Jesus of Nazareth just did, they make an accurate and meaningful confession about Him. They say, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. 
Now, they most likely did not understand the full weight of what they were saying at the time. But there is little doubt that Mark recorded their confession, their declaration, their praise to unmistakably link this miracle story to the prophecy given by Isaiah almost 700 years prior to Jesus' time on the earth. Isaiah 35. I'm going to read it for you one more time. Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. Then the eyes of the blind... Remember, 700 years prior to Jesus coming to earth. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This section of Scripture is a prophecy looking forward to what we would call the Messianic Age. The Messianic Age. It is a time when the promised and long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament, God's Anointed One. Do you know that's what Messiah means? Messiah literally means God's Anointed One. And I'll just tell you now, Christ is the Greek word used for Messiah. Christ is the Greek word used for Messiah. It means anointed one also. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. It is the time that the anointed one will rule over the nations and restore what has been broken or ruined. And by the way, anointed, that means that this person, God's anointed one, it means this person will have God's power and authority. That's what it means. Anointed. During the Messianic age, the Messiah, the Christ, will reign as the God-appointed and authorized king in God's future kingdom on earth. Now listen, let's tie it all together. About this text in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, and regarding this new and glorious kingdom... One writer says, changes will occur in the people in the land. Changes will occur in the people and in the land. Because of God's healing power, those who are blind will see. Those who are deaf will hear. Those who are lame will leap. And those who cannot talk will shout. And it will be the Messiah that will bring this all about. Luke 19.44, though, tells us that the people did not recognize their time of visitation. The Messiah came, beloved, but the nation of Israel rejected Him as their Messiah. As a result, the promise of the Messianic Age, listen, the promise of the Messianic Age remains to be fulfilled in the future. Those promises I read to you out of Joel, they are yet future. We are still waiting their fulfillment. Beloved, Mark was doing everything he could to help his readers not to make the same mistake that the nation had made. But understand that the Jesus who was crucified is the Messiah that the Scriptures had promised would come. That's what he's doing. He was not just Jesus from Nazareth. 
He was Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. Now this, beloved, elevates him to a position that is worthy of and demands our total submission and our never-ending loyalty. It is the highest office in the land, in the universe. Christ. People, people say Jesus Christ. I think they start to think that it is His last name. It is not. It is His office. It is His title. In comparison, beloved, it makes the title President of the United States seem insignificant. And yet, just I heard the other day, our president was visiting somewhere here in California. I don't remember where. And people were flocking, right? Just to see his car drive by. Just out of honor to wave and, and maybe be a part of even being around the President of the United States. And you know what? He, they're to a certain degree. That is a great office. And he deserves honor, respect. But how much more? Jesus the Christ. We the church, believers, followers of Jesus, beloved, we are, we are waiting. We are waiting with bated, bated breath, anticipating Jesus the Christ, the King, to return and establish His divine rule and exercise His God-given authority on this earth like the world has never seen before. And we believe what Peter said to the people of Israel in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. This is what he said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, no doubt, that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made Him Lord, beloved. you know what that means? Master. That's what the word means. We throw around the word Lord like it's a two-cent word. Lord, Lord. Yeah, I love you, Lord. That word means master. It means supreme in authority. That's what it means. And Christ, we've talked about that. That means promised Messiah, God's anointed one, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now here's the question. We know what God has made him. What have you made him? Is Jesus your buddy? Your homeboy? Your boyfriend? Your genie? Your partner? Your co pilot? Your fire insurance? Your help when it's convenient. Is Jesus standing by to take your orders? Or are you taking His? Who gives the commands in this relationship? Who has absolute authority over your life? You? Or Him? Who has the final say? 
Does Jesus have a voice in your life? Or is He the voice in your life? This is one of the problems, beloved, with the church today. They, they know of Jesus, but they really don't understand His special title. They don't. We give more respect to a worldly leader than we do to the one God has made Lord and Christ. Beloved, the truth is we we can't make Him anything. But we can treat Him like something He is not. Remember that. The Jesus who performed a multitude of miracles was not a medicine man. He was not a magician. But He was the Messiah of God. The Christ. And that has serious implications about how we we ought to think of Him, how we ought to worship Him, and how we ought to follow Him. Let's pray. Father God, I pray, I trust that You would work in our hearts, our minds, that we would understand Jesus rightly. That we would see Him and know Him in all of His glory. That we would understand how significant and important it is for us to even say Jesus Christ. He is not just Jesus. There are many people throughout history who have been named Jesus. But what makes Him unique above all those is only one is named Jesus the Christ because only one has been given your power and authority. And only one has been promised that He will be coming again to rule and reign with a mighty hand in total and complete righteousness, crushing His enemies. Only one should be called Master or Lord because He is the Sovereign One and deserves our utmost and complete reverence and awe and respect. Father, we love... Jesus, we love Him and, and it is good to be intimate with Him. But help us not to lose sight of who He really is. Help us not to become so comfortable with Jesus that we forget He is the Christ. He is the Lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when He says to His people, the ones that He purchased with His very blood, when He says anything to them, the only appropriate response to one of that type of significance and magnificence was one that carries that title, is yes, Lord. Yes. Help us, Father. Help us honor Him.
as He will be honored throughout eternity. In Jesus' name, Amen.